Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for braving COVID and this extraordinary heat to be here. I'm just, I'm so impressed that I've got uh, members of the audience to talk to because it's, um, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, hot out there. I actually arrived and the only thing that I could think of doing was to, I needed to jump in the, in the water. I say the sea because I'm from England. So I needed to jump. So I've been for a swim in the bay today, which probably some of you will... <laughs> Never thought that that was possible, but it is. You can go opposite the Maritime Museum. You can go for a swim, and it's very refreshing. So I thoroughly recommend it tomorrow for those of you that overheat. So, um, But anyway, it's a thrill to be here at the Commonwealth Club, and it's great to be speaking here in San Francisco because last time I was here, I was down in Silicon Valley. So it's fantastic to be in this fabulous building um, to talk to you about my new book, Bitch. Um, which is about how female animals have been marginalised and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy. And I'll kick off with a flavour of, of, of the kind of uh, marginalised behaviour that, uh, that, that I'm talking about with um, my tutor from Oxford, Richard Dawkins. There he is, not looking in the slightest bit intimidating. Um, <laughs> He was a very terrifying man to write an essay for, I can tell you. Um, uh, but he, when I, he, he was obviously the author of The, Fe- the Selfish Gene, and um, The Selfish Gene had this to say about females, that the female is exploited, and the fundamental evolutionary basis for the exploitation is the fact that eggs are larger than sperms. Female exploitation begins here. It's a, a pretty, a pretty uh, depressing uh, uh, statement to receive as an egg-making student of evolution. Um, but, you know, you can't blame Dawkins for this sentiment because it goes further back, um, all the way to my scientific hero, this guy, Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin was an incredible scientist. And the, his theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest theories of all, in, in the whole of science. But he was also a man of his time. And so when he came to define the sexes, he branded the female of the species in the shape of a Victorian housewife because that was what was appropriate for the time. Um, and because Darwin said it, all the scientists that followed in his wake suffered from a chronic case of confirmation bias and, 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 and just either, either didn't, just ignored things that didn't fit in with the paradigm that he'd set up or they, um, they just didn't study females at all. Um, he, he outlined his idea of the sexes in his second great theoretical masterpiece, which was published in 1871, which was The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And he said that the males of almost all animals have stronger passions than the females. Hence, it is the males that fight together and sedulously display their charms before the females. The female, on the other hand with the rarest of exceptions, is less eager than the male. She generally requires to be courted. She is coy. Now, um, try telling (laughs) a female spotted hyena that she needs to be uh, coy and submissive, and she'll laugh in your face after she's bitten it off. Um, We now know that that females are just as competitive, aggressive, dominant, promiscuous, dynamic and varied as males. It's just for centuries we either weren't looking or didn't want to see it. 
But thankfully, things are starting to change. And in the last few decades, a revolution has been brewing, which is redefining not just the female of the species, but the very forces that shape evolution. And today, I'm going to introduce you to some of the females that are part of that revolution. And we'll start with the lioness. This photo I took, in fact, on the Tanzanian safari that I was privileged to be a part of, the Commonwealth, um, earlier in the year. Um, and the lioness is really special to me because it was the first inkling that I had that females didn't behave in the way that I'd been taught at university. They weren't submissive, coy, and, 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 and chaste, as, as Darwin had, had outlined. And I... I, it was about 15 years ago, and I was in the Serengeti, and I was, I was making a series for the BBC about animal communication. And we were, we were basically trying to <laughs> have a conversation with a lion, uh, which, you, which is actually not that difficult. So all you need is a, a loudspeaker with a, with a lion's roar. We had a, a, a recording of a lion's roar, and I was with this Dr. Seifert, who was a German expert in lion communication. And... We played the sound of a, a lion's roar out of the side, uh, uh, out of a little portable speaker. And um, first of all, the sound of a lion's roar is nothing like the MGM sound that you're familiar with. It's like the sort of, you know, it's not a kind of oh, majestic roar. Um, it actually sounds more like a sort of a kind of almost as if Boris Johnson was looking for cheese at midnight, that kind of sound. You know, it, it's not, it doesn't sound like the sound of a lion's roar. So the whole thing seemed completely crazy to me. There was this sort of sound, and I thought, coming out of a loudspeaker, I was like, well, this is never going to work. But it did. And, and, you know, sure enough, we played our sound, and, and then in the distance, and then got closer, and we played our, our roar, and then we played audio ping pong with this, this lion for about five minutes until out of the gloom padded not one but three lions, two males and a female. And the males, as soon as they came across nothing, that they didn't find anything that looked or smelt like a male lion, they just disappeared. But the female lion, she pinned us to the spot and lay in front of the jeep, sort of legs akimbo, and, um, and wouldn't move for, for two hours. We were stuck there, and I, I said to Dr. Seifert, what's going on? And he goes, oh, she wants to mate with us. And I was like, yeah, but isn't she like mating with one of those males that she was with? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But the female lioness, she's amazingly promiscuous. She'll mate over a hundred times in a matter of days with multiple males during estrus. And I was like, whoa, that wasn't what I was taught. You know, that's, that's news to me. So um, I was sort of, you know, quietly thrilled and curious about this, this incredibly licentious nature of the lioness. Well, we now know why the lioness behaves in such a, a, a promiscuous way, thanks to this woman, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, who I think might be listening online. Um, so Sarah is, is really, um, you know, a, a trailblazer in challenging these stereotypes. And she's the first person to sort of to, to, to look at this conundrum of, 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 of sex, female sexual strategy. And here, here's a photo of her that was taken by her husband, actually, when she was studying langurs in India in the uh, early 19, uh, late 1970s and the early 1980s. And 
Sarah discovered she was she went she was studying at Harvard and she went to into the field uh, to to study language to find out about infanticide because the males are infanticidal and they sometimes kill um, females' babies. And but what she also noticed was that the females were very actively soliciting sex from males outside of the group. And really, she was really the first person, the first scientist to sort of not ignore this behavior that didn't fit the paradigm, but to go, well, this is interesting. Why is this happening? Um, And she figured out that it was actually connected with infanticide. So, you know, she worked out that that basically the males are infanticidal because if if, if a new male comes into a territory, then... The females, if they've got babies already and they're, they're breastfeeding, the, they're, they're nursing the babies, then they're not going to be receptive to, to having um, babies with, the, with this new male. But if, if, the, um, if, the, uh, if, if, if they kill the babies, then, then she'll be forced into estrus and she'll be receptive, right? So if the females have this counter-strategy by mating with all the males in the area then that prevents them killing the babies because the males, if they've, if they, all they have to remember is, is if, they've, if they've recently had sex with, with a female, then, then, then not to kill the babies. So this, this theory um, has now been applied to over 50 species, including lions. It's the same story with lions. It's, you know, it's, it's basically the females are mating with multiple males to protect their offspring, they are they're being good mums, um, and and in some cases they 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 have an awful lot of sex in order to protect their offspring. Um, we know that um, in in an ovulating chimp female might solicit sex with every male in her community and have sex thirty to fifty times a day. Yeah, but I mean, there's a, once I know it sounds positively exhausting, doesn't it? I mean, um, and Barbary macaque females are equally lustful, with one female recorded having sex at least once every 17 minutes um, with every sexually mature male in the group, of which there were 11. So, you know, what's really interesting is, is you know, in, in human society, you know, females will, would be given all sorts of bad names for such behavior, but as Sarah says, they're actually these females are just being assiduously maternal. They're actually, you know, they're being good mums, and that's, that's why they're behaving in that way. Um, so obviously when I, when I came to start researching this book, Sarah was top of my list of, of people that I wanted to get in touch with. And um, I wrote to her. She actually lives here in California. And she very generously responded and said, yeah, come visit me on my... I, I've got a walnut farm, and you can come and visit me at, at the farm. And... And, and, and I, was, I was kind of nervous because, well, I mean, talk by Richard Dawkins, who's a scary character. <laughs> and, and here was a woman who's got an, an equal canon of work with, you know, she's written at least three brilliant um, books. And, um, and I was kind of nervous about going there. But when I got there, I couldn't have been made more welcome because Sarah actually baked me a pie. <laughs> I got that she listened to my book the night before, my previous book. She listened to it on audiobook and knew that I love vultures. And, um, and so baked me a vulture pie. There were no vultures in the pie. Um, it was a chicken pie. It was delicious. Um, but she put vultures on the top because she knew I loved um, vultures, which was incredibly uh, sweet. And in- she was, has been incredibly welcoming and, and, um, 
and a great mentor in the, throughout the whole of this uh, project. And what was even more amazing than her pie <laughs> were her house guests because she had staying with her at the time Mary Jane uh, West Eberhard and Jean Altman. And together, these women have you know, redefined what it means to be female. They have fought the, the scientific um, patriarchy with fierce data and logic. And um, between them, they, they have, uh, you know, science owes them, we owe them a huge amount. Um, and it was extraordinary to, to get to meet them. Um, they, I, I, I like to think of them as the rabble-rousing matriarchs of modern Darwinism. Um, and you'll meet some of their work. Um, in, uh, I'll talk about some of their work over the next hour. Um, and this is the fourth member of the crew. This is Patty, Patty, Patricia Goarty. Um, and these women call themselves feminist Darwinists. So they don't... They're not, they're not saying that Darwin was all wrong by any means. It's just that he was looking at the world through a Victorian pinhole camera. And thanks to their work and the scientists that they've inspired, we're now getting the full Technicolor version of life. And it's so much richer and more interesting for it. Um, but, of course... Tearing down paradigms doesn't come easy and, and, and often requires a fight. And, and Patty, in particular, has, uh, despite how sweet she looks and sounds, she's, she's had to do quite a lot of fighting. So a good example is one of her early studies, which was on songbirds. So songbirds we think of as being the sort of very paragon of monogamy you know you see the male songbird and he sings his heart out and attracts a female and then together they'll build a nest and 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 raise the chicks together but patty was like mm, I, I wonder whether it's all so sweet at home as it as it really seems um so what she did was something totally ingenious which was that she co-opted technology that had been developed for forensics, um, DNA fingerprinting, and was the first person to use that to paternity test eggs. So she took a clutch of eggs and she checked to see whether they all had the same father. And they didn't. So um, she, and, uh, she, her, her subject was the eastern bluebird, um, which is, of course, famous from zippity doo and, and Disney films and you know, it's about as all-American as apple pie, and, and Patty was basically calling her a Jezebel, which was, you know, never going to go down well. But she was, even she was shocked at, at how much resistance there was by the ornithological establishment to her data. And when she presented at an ornithological conference in the early 1980s um, with her, her, her data on, on, on the um, paternity, the... Um, there was, there was just outrage, and, and she was told by a very famous male ornithologist that the only way that this could be possible was if the females had been raped. There's just, you know, that's the only answer for this. And she's like, well, you know, and she's got this fantastic southern accent, which I won't attempt to do, but she's, she's like, well, you know, it's just ridiculous because, you know, a songbird is about the only thing that don't need a Me Too movement, you know, because it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible for them to be raped, you know. So basically, birds, if you don't know songbirds, um, they have a cloaca. The male doesn't have a penis in order to, to mate with the female, to fertilize her. He's got to balance on her back 
and they've got to line up their cloacas and they've got to be averted. And, and, and so if the female's not into it at any stage, she can just fly off, you know. So the idea that, that she was being sexually coerced was completely ludicrous, but yet that was the line that was taken. Um, and it actually took um, other scientists, like Bridget Stutchbury was one, putting radio trackers on, on birds, on female birds, and tracking their movements and finding that they were, they were actively leaving their territory and soliciting sex with other males in order to establish that, that, that the females had agency in this and they weren't being victims. And, and you know, we now know that there's, there's a huge difference between social and sexual monogamy. And songbirds do social monogamy very well, sexual monogamy... Mm, less so. In fact, there are only seven species, seven percent of species of birds that are actually monogamous, and 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 that figure may even be lower by now. Um, even swans are unfaithful. <laughs> so, um, um, uh, so and and but this 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 discovery sparked at what's been called a polyandry revolution. And we now understand that animals as diverse as lions and lizards and lobsters, um, all the females all have a strategy of, of mating with multiple males. And to, to Patricia Goati, the, 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 it, it's really obvious why. Um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, if you, if you mate with multiple males, you have more chance of, 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 of finding genetic compatibility. Um, and, and basically, mating with multiple males means healthier offspring at the end of the day. Um, so females are, are just as sexually strategic as males, but what about another one of those myths, which is that, that males are the aggressive ones and they'll, you know, they're, they're, they're the, the competitive, aggressive, and, and females are, 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 are passive and, 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 and are not aggressive and, and not competitive. Well... Um, females um, were were branded basically um, by 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 Darwin as, as as you know as, as having a maternal instinct and and it was it was thought that females were uh, you know good mothers but as such you know we had a natural maternal instinct and so we were all basically the same and we had no competitive edge. Well. That's also not true, and I'd like to introduce you tonight to the most murderous animal in the animal kingdom, most mur murderous mammal, so the, 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 the mammal that's most likely to kill a member of its own species, and this is it. It's not me. <laughs> uh, it's the meerkat. So you're probably familiar with the meerkat from, from cute TV shows, um, they are. They're, they're incredibly cute and, and funny creatures. And but but the fact of the matter is is that uh, every every meerkat has a one in five chance of being killed by another meerkat. Most probably, its own mother or sister. Um, meerkat society is 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 tense and homicidal. <laughs> uh, and it's predicated on ruthless competition between females who will readily kill and eat each other's pups. Um, and this, this is kept in check by a dominant female who's, who's the, the dominant member of the, of the community. They, meerkats live in, in extended family groups. Um, and the, the dominant, she will... She, she basically... Any, any female that, that, that dares to... to 
you know, get pregnant by a roving male is is basically uh, is she'll kill their babies and evict them from the from the clan. And obviously in the Kalahari uh, desert, eviction is tantamount to a death sentence. Um, But the females are allowed back on the condition that they will wet nurse their murderous um, their, their, their murderers babies themselves and that enables the dominant female to put all of her energy into making more pups and not have to spend energy on lactation herself so you know that's it, 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 it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty brutal and, and that's how the, 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 the meerkat has become the most murderous mammal on the planet there's actually a survey of a thousand mammals that found that the meerkat was the most murderous um, even more so than humans so, uh, and it's the females that are that are the most aggressive. Um, it, it, it's not exactly meerkat manner, and it's, it has always surprised me that that meerkats have become such sort of cozy, cute TV fodder um, when they their their society is so brutal. Um, and really kind of, you know, they, they are described scientifically as being co- cooperative, which has also <laughs> struck me as somewhat ironic because it doesn't seem much like cooperation to me. Uh, it's more like reproductive despotism. But it, it, it's definitely very competitive and aggressive. Now, of course, the queens of the cooperative lifestyle are the, co- uh, the social insects. Um, and here you can see a termite queen, um, and her gargantuan distended abdomen. So these have really taken this idea of, uh, you know, cooperation to the to the max. So you can just make out the sort of the head of the queen and and her and her thorax and her legs. But her entire ad- abdomen has has swelled in order to just lay eggs basically so she can lay over 20,000 eggs a day and is capable of producing in theory 146 million termites in her lifetime which is because they can live for 20 years and they lay an egg every couple of seconds but in order to do that that's all she can do so she's serviced by by an army of, of 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 helpers who will feed her and clean her and and look after the babies but she is the most reproductively successful animal on the planet um and yeah in order to achieve this her abdomen swells over a thousand times allowing her to to spend all of that energy on 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 laying eggs and this extreme brand of cooperative breeding involving uh, a clear division of labor between the queen and and the workers um, is known as eusociality and you know it may seem comforting to think that that just happens in insects there's nothing like that in mammals we've got nothing so sort of crazy sci-fi going on amongst mammals but we do actually it turns out there is a uh, a eusocial mammal out there and this is it it's the naked mole rat um I, I happen to think that naked mole rats are incredibly cute, but <laughs> I may be alone in thinking that. But they are fantastically weird animals. Um, you know, they regularly top the ag- ugly animal charts, um, and you can sort of see why. Um, the Chris Falks, who's been studying them for 20 years in London, he, just, he says they look like a penis with teeth, which is... <laughs> I mean... 
it, it's it's a, it's a, it's a graphic description, but um, but you know you can sort of see what he's getting at. But um, but they're fantastically weird animals, and I I love strange weird animals, and I've wanted to see them all my life. And they they live underground in 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 vast underground networks under in very hostile places, uh, in Kenya and. East Africa, under sort of baked earth. Um, so incredibly hard to see because they don't pop up <laughs> very often because they get burnt to a crisp, clearly. So, um, but uh, the first time I met them wasn't in East Africa. It was in, it was in an incredibly hot cupboard in East London um, where Chris Falks has been studying them. And he's created a facsimile of their underground world in this cupboard using a load of Tupperware and plastic tubing. Um, and it's a fantastically Heath Robinson affair, but it does mean that he's able to observe their extraordinary life, lifestyle. Um, so they live in colonies up to 300, and there's one queen who's the only breeding female, and she has one or two mates. And outside of those, those breeding individuals, the, the, the queen and her mates, none of the other members of the colony will breed because they can't, because they haven't gone through puberty. So she actually suppresses their reproduction, and, their, and they, they don't go through puberty. And Chris has been trying to work out why and how, how that is. And he thinks that, that, that the way that she achieves it is by basically being a royal bully. Um, so here's... I'll just do that. That'll play... Oh, the video's not playing. How do I play that? Is that playing? No, it's not playing. How do I do that? Oh, I just pressed that there. Okay, there we go. Now you can see them in motion because they are extraordinary creatures. So there you go, dominance behavior. That, that clambering over the top, that's, that's the queen exerting her dominance. Oh, look how she's exerting her dominance. And she's like, yeah, I'm the queen. So she basically goes around physically stating her dominance by clambering over individuals, shoving them, biting them. I mean, <laughs> it suddenly all makes the British royal family seem remarkably benign. <laughs> but that's what happens with the naked mole rat queen. She's, uh, she basically spends her life... She's not like the termite who lives in a royal t chamber and is sort of endlessly groomed and cared for. She just goes around bullying the whole time. And what Chris thinks is that that upsets the hormones, in particular prolactin, and means that the, the, they never go through sexual maturity. All the while, she's dominant and on the move and on her big royal bullying tour. Once she stops, if she becomes weak, then Chris told me all hell breaks loose. And he goes, it gets very Game of Thrones really quick. Because... A bunch of females will suddenly mature and then they will fight to the death for the queen's spot because there's everything to fight for in that moment. There's, there's no point. I mean, the point of life is to reproduce and they have this one opportunity. And he said that, you know, he's like, it's a gnawing um, teeth of death and, you know, that the, 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 the tubes get filled with blood until a female um, becomes the winner. And she's everything to, to, to play for because... You know, the, 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 the queen uh, is able to have litters of 27 pups at a time. I mean, this is an extraordinary feat for a, for a mammal. She doesn't even have that many nipples, you know. So she can have 27 uh, pups at a time. And one female was documented having 900 pups in, in 24 years, you know, which is an extraordinary output for a female. And um, 
it, it, it sort of really shows that, you know, we, we think of, you know, like those, those male elephant seals that we, we saw earlier, you know, that, that were fighting. And, you know, the idea is, is that males, you know, are much more variable and much more varied in their reproductive success because you'll have one male that would, you know, have, have, a, have a, a bunch of females that he will, he'll command and, 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 and the other male, males won't breed. And so this difference in reproductive success drives evolution, right? And the idea was that females didn't, didn't, didn't have that kind of difference, you know. Well, you know, take, take a red stag, for example. They're really famous for, you know, the males have got these huge horns and in the rut they'll, they'll fight each other. Tim Clutton-Brock told me that the, the most successful red stag that he's ever documented only ever managed to sire 25 offspring in his, lifestyle, in his lifetime for all of that fighting. And here you have the naked mole rat queen and she's, she's doing 900. So, you know, the idea that females are less variable um, than males is, is simply not true. Um, now, the, the females can live for, for as I say, for, for 20 odd years. And you probably think to yourself, well, that's, that's quite a long time for an animal that size. You know, they're about the size of a hamster. You should really only live about three years. And this is the extra added topping on this dystopia is that, the queen is apparently immune to aging. It's just extraordinary. So they're studied in, in Silicon Valley labs because they hold the, um, the secret to eternal youth. They, they can live nine times longer than is, is expected of a mammal their size. Their DNA doesn't age like normal mammals. They're immune to cancer. Um, and they are, they, 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 they're, when you touch them, I mean... They are, they're really soft. You wouldn't expect it, but it's because their skin is full of hyaluron, which is this sort of the interstitial gloop that's in super expensive face creams. You know, so that is the face of eternal youth. <laughs> it's not pretty, but there it is. Um, so you'll be pleased to hear that, that female authority isn't always so brutal. Um, these are, uh, here's a pod of orcas, and um, orcas uh, similarly live in family groups, um, hugely social, highly intelligent. They're basically souped-up dolphins. They're the biggest member of the cetacean family. And for a long time, it was thought that it was the males that were in charge. Of course, they're bigger, and the females were just the harem. Um, but it turns out that it, it's, it's not only the females that are in charge, it's actually the postmenopausal grannies that are in charge. Um, and the research that has revealed this uh, happened just up the coast in uh, just off the coast of Washington state. Um, a group of orcas known as the Southern Residents have told us all about this. And it, it, it's fascinating because menopause is actually incredibly rare in the animal kingdom. So, you know, natural se selection takes a pretty dim view of a loss of fertility. You know, the point of, of life is to reproduce. Once you stop reproducing, you die. You know, and, and, and even famously long-lived animals like Galapagos tortoises or even elephants will continue reproducing into their twilight years, which is particularly astonishing when you think of an elephant, you know, has a pregnancy of 22 months and she's still going through that ordeal in her 60s. But that is the case, right? I mean, it's amazing. So orcas are something of an anomaly, um, uh, it was, it, was, it was amazing to discover that the orcas also do this because we had, humans had been thought of as being this sort of menopausal freaks, basically, for, 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 for going 
for, going, for living beyond our reproductive fitness. But we now know we're not alone. It's not just orcas. There are actually four species of toothed whale that also go through the menopause. And what we, what we now understand is, is that um, for, from studying the orcas, so the southern residents have been studied for 40 or 50 years, and there's a huge amount of data on their society. And what was discovered is, is, is it's actually the, 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 it's these postmenopausal females that are, that are leading their community. And, and basically, by stopping reproducing halfway through their life, they, they stop competing with their daughters. And, and by investing instead in their existing offspring, their genetic legacy does much better in the end. So it supports what was proposed many years ago by Kristen Hawkes um, as the grandmother hypothesis as to why we also go through menopause. Um, and uh, they're basically these old lady whales are the, are the repositories for ecological wisdom that, that keep their hunting community alive. Um, and you might be thinking to yourself, how do you study menopause in an orca? You know, like, how are you going to do hormone samples? Like, how do you know all this stuff? Well, because you can't take blood samples, right? You can't. It's a, it's a six-ton swimming torpedo with teeth. You're not going to do daily blood samples. Um, no, instead what you do is you get fecal samples. So here I am modeling some orca poop actually, in a Tupperware box. Um, this is when I went... So I, I joined um, Dr. Giles, who is the Southern Residence official pooper scooper, basically. Um, uh, uh, she, she, she plies her trade off, off the San Juan Islands, off, off the coast of uh, off, off Seattle. And um, I arrived and, uh, at her boat, and, and she handed me a net, and, and I was like... <laughs> God. And she said, don't worry, whales do floaters, big ones. Um, but I was thinking, but, you know, still we've got to find those things, you know, but actually they've got help in the shape of Eber. This is Dr. Giles here with Eber, who's a, a, a rescue dog. For, it was a street dog from Sacramento who's been um, rehomed and trained to sniff out orca poop. And she can sniff orca poop from a nautical mile away. This is this is, uh, this is Eber in her office, um, and, um, and she takes her job very seriously. And, uh, and so, yeah, she, she, she guided us towards um, some orca poop that day. And, uh, and poop is a, is a gold mine. You know, it, it can t tell you all about the hormones obviously involved and, and all sorts about the, um, the health of the, of, of the, of the sea, uh, the Salish Sea. Um, and I was really, I, I discovered that these orcas are an extraordinary society that's incredibly inclusive and caring and empathetic. And they, they, they have these extraordinary brains. Um, they have a brain that weighs seven kilos and, and it has more surface area for cognitive thought than any other animal on the planet. And they really are a magnet for superlatives intellectually because they, they also have... Um, this extra paralimbic lobe that's only found in dolphins and orcas and, and where it's positioned in the brain suggests that they process emotion in a way that we actually can't comprehend. So they are these extraordinary, socially cohesive, empathetic, uh, intelligent creatures. And 
they, they care for one another. You know, these, these wise old lady whales are, are, are caring for their society. And this individual here um, on the right has scoliosis. And it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't able to sort of hunt as efficiently as, as the rest of the, uh, the clan, but it was supported and, and you know, would, 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 uh, food would be shared with it. Um, so I, I have to say I, I found the, the story of these empathetic, wise old lady uh, killer whales in, incredibly um, moving and inspiring. Um, but what about primates? Well, we're taught that, you know, we're led to believe that patriarchy is burnt into our DNA. Um, in the 1970s, this is what Lionel Tiger had to say about female primates seem biologically unprogrammed to dominate political systems. Um, you know, female primates are just mothers, just getting on with being a mother, and there was no need to be political or, or compete with one another. Um, well... This is a completely ludicrous idea, and thanks to the work of, of, of Gene Altman, amongst many others, who, who you saw in the photo earlier with Sarah, um, Gene's established a, 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 a long-running baboon study that's been going for about 40 years now and has really amassed a huge amount of data on, 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 on mothers and, 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 and how they behave. And you, we now understand that, that in, in all primate societies, females... You know, the males may well be having their showy fight for dominance, but females also inhabit a hierarchy. And in many cases, like baboons, um, it's actually a very stable hierarchy. The, the male dominant, the alpha male will come and go in a fist fight, but the females don't disperse. So they, they're, they're matrilines, their 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 status is inherited down the line, and 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 they um and they, they form the sort of stable core of the group, and they are. They're very, they're, they're very politically savvy. They are very, very conscious of, 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 of status. Um, and, and, and with good reason, because, you know, where you are in that hierarchy has a huge, huge bearing on how successful you'll be as a mother and how many, and how successful, how many, how many um, babies that you'll, you'll successfully raise. Um, and, and, in, and, and certainly with baboons, um, Gene Altman's work has established that in order to sort of escape the shackles of, of being born into, into lower class, if you play a deft political game and, and make strategic friendships with, with male and uh, female baboons, then you're able to, um, to do much better in your, in your lot in life. So, so the idea that females aren't political or is completely ludicrous. Um, but yet, nevertheless, it seems natural, doesn't it, that, that males would be in charge. That, that's, that's what feels natural to us. Um, and that's why you get characters like this. So for those of you that have seen the movie Madagascar, you'll recognize this is King Julian. He's a ring-tailed lemur. And lemurs are, are, are primates. And um, I, I actually went to Madagascar myself um, and King Julian was nowhere to be found um, because it turns out the ring-tailed lemurs are, are, are female dominant. Um, so this is this, these are some female ringtails that I I filmed doing their favourite thing in the morning, which is sunbathing. So basically, <laughs> female female ringtails. It's kind of cold sleeping in caves, and so they like to start the morning with. Um, Soaking up some sun, um, and but 
God forbid any male should take one of the prime sun, sunbathing spots and they'll whack them over the head. If they try and eat before them, they'll whack them over the head. The females rule with an iron fist. And not only that, they, they also do a lot of the scent marking and, 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 and territorial work that's normally associated with males, like with, with chimpanzees, for example. So, the, and the males are f- afraid of them, basically, and they're, they're, they're kept in line by the females. Um, and but it's not just ringtail lemurs that are female dominant. If you, these are a, a selection of the the lemurs that I found that I met when I was in Madagascar, and and they were all female dominant species. Um, in fact, the hun- there's 111 species of lemur, and 90% of them are female dominant. And the reason why this is interesting is because lemurs are amongst our most ancestral primate cousins. So they, they broke off from the main primate line about sort of 50 million years ago and have been evolving in isolation in Madagascar since. But um, along with the bush babies and galagas, the other, the other prosimians, which are also female dominant, it suggests that the, the ancestor of all primates was female dominant. So... Um, and you can, you can, they don't, you know, they don't look much like um, primates, but you can really see it when you look at their hands. Uh, it was at the, the, the hand of a, a rough-tailed, uh, black and white rough lemur. And you can see that they, they, they are uh, sort of, uh, they, they, look more, they look more like uh, primates when you can see their hands. Um, but of course... This is, this is what we're more familiar with, isn't it? These are chimpanzee males and they're all revved up for a fight and they've got their, their fur standing on end and they're bearing their canines. And, and you know, this, this has long been a model for human ancestry, the, the, the chimpanzee, um, patriarchal and warlike. And males are bigger than females. They have these big canines and, they, and they're aggressively dominant. But are they really the best model for hominid society for our for our for our ancestry well perhaps not because we have another equally close relative which is the bonobo um and this sassy character i met in san diego zoo this is loretta and she is the she's the boss of her community so bonobos are pygmy pygmy chimpanzees they they have exactly the equal we're equally closely related to chimpanzees and bonobos um and the reason why loretta is uh, <laughs> amy parish who's who studied loretta for over 20 years um so she looks a bit like shrek which is you know <laughs> is perhaps a little unfair but she's really bald because of all the grooming she gets so the balder you are is a sign of status, you know. So she's been groomed so much, she's lost most of her hair because she's the boss. She runs, she, she's the, the boss in, 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 in at San Diego Zoo, the, the community they have there. And similarly in the wild, bonobos are, are, are more often than not female dominant. Sometimes you might have a situation where there's a co-dominance with, but basically females are dominant um, generally over males. But they're smaller than males. So, but they achieve their dominance by forming a, a very strong, powerful sisterhood that stands up to male aggression. And this is interesting because unlike the baboons that we saw earlier, the females actually disperse. So 
the females, when they join a group, they're not related to the other individuals. So they're naturally competitive. But the way that they overcome that competition is by having sex with one another. So the females, um, uh, they, 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 they have sexual relationships with, 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 with each other and this dampens the aggression and, and means that they all get along with each other. So basically females have overthrown the patriarchy through ecstatic same-sex frottage. So go sisters, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, a, it's, an astonishing tr- it's an astonishing story and... Um, they're, they, you know, they're known as the make love, not war hippie ape. And they, you know, they, they're just not as aggressive as, as chimpanzees. And it's not just the females that are having sex with each other. The, the males will have um, sex with each other. And obviously males and females do as well. So there's, they, you know, and they have a very peaceful society. Um, and, and their society could equally be a model for human beha- for human a- for our ancestry there's you know an anthropologist will argue forever about whether our, our ancestors were more chimp like or more bonobo like and and they they'll continue to have those arguments but i think what's fascinating really is to see how flexible dominance is you know and the power of the sisterhood um and also how flexible sexuality is because um Amy Parrish and Franz de Waal, who studied bonobos for many, many years, say that all bonobos are fundamentally bisexual. They, you know, they, that, that's, that's their sexual orientation. And that brings me on to the sort of, the, the sort of newest form of bias, really, that I, I came across um, beyond the sort of sexist bias that was outlined by, by Victorian stereotypes um, that are being that are being overthrown is this heteronormative bias where we just sort of assume that couples are male and female and 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 and, and that's the way that it works well not always so this photograph i took in hawaii this is a laysan albatross and this particular colony in hawaii have been studied for 50 years and laysan albatross like many albatross they are they're serial monogamists. Um, and, you know, they'll spend six months on the wing and then they'll connect with their partner with a huge flamboyant and, frankly, hilarious dance that they do where they kind of moo in the air and clap, 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 clap. And then you know, and it's just absolutely wonderful thing to see. Um, but they, uh, and, and they, and they, they, take, they, they, they have to p- p- partner up because raising a chick takes six months. You can't do it by yourself. And, and the females lay one egg at a time. Um, and, but this particular colony, over the course of the, the, the 40 or so years that they've been collecting data on it, they found this phenomenon of double clutches where there were some nests that had two eggs in them. Because it's impossible for a female to lay two eggs. It's, it's just not possible. So there were all sorts of kind of crazy ideas of why the females were laying two eggs. And then Lindsay Young, who's, who's in the back of that shot there, and her colleague thought to themselves, well, are we sure that they're male and female couples? You know, they look identical. Everybody assumed they were male and female couples. And she went round and she did, um, of the 50-odd nests that there were in the colony, she went and did DNA. She got feathers and, and did DNA and found, much to her shock, that a third of the couples in the colony were female-female couples. 
And that's why they were two eggs, because basically the females, there's, there's with with the this is a new colony that the, the big colony is on this sort of atoll way out and there's thousands and thousands of birds and so these are sort of pioneers the birds that are striking out in a, in the north shore of Oahu um, and what happens is it's more likely to be the females that are the pioneers the males tend to stay and nest where they were where they were born. And so there's a shortage of males in this colony and the females are making the best of the situation by basically using other albatross husbands as sperm donors and then shacking up with a female in order to, to raise the chicks, um, <laughs> which, is a, which is a really sensible idea. And, you know, some of these females will... And, and so they both will lay an egg and then only one can be cared for and so generally one rolls out and, and only one gets raised. Um, and that's quite random with that process. It doesn't seem like there's that they're not they're not really very smart and territorial about their eggs. In fact, Lindsay said to me that she's even seen them trying to incubate volleyballs. So <laughs> there's a lot a lot of discernment that goes on over eggs. So she doesn't think that they're strategically like booting out the other ones. So, you know that it's just a sort of random thing. Only one only one ends up being for, um, being raised. But some of these couples, some of the females you know, might pair with a female one year and then they might mate with a male the next year and, and couple up and, 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 and be with that male. Um, but some of these female couples have been together for a long time because they just work. Um, and there was one couple that I met who had been together for 17 years since, since Lindsay has been doing taking data. 17 years. And in that time, they've had eight, grand ch eight chicks and, and three grand chicks. You know, and, they, and, and she said that they do all the same stuff, you know, when they, they go off for six months on the wing and then when they're reunited, they do all the same lovey-dovey dances and, you know, preening and all the same sort of bird kissing that releases bird oxytocin and, and strengthens that pair bond. And they just, they've just got it right. It just works, you know. So I think what's really fantastic about this story is just it just shows how flexible sexual behavior and, and, and sexuality really is in the animal kingdom. And I think that's one of the things that really surprised me as I was doing this research that I, I didn't expect to find was, was the plasticity of sex and sex and sexuality. So here's another example. We talked earlier, I mentioned about the maternal instinct. You know, the females are thought to be sort of, you know, born with this mythical maternal instinct. Well, if you're a frog, um, you're, it, it's, it's more likely than not that it's the males that do the parental care, not the females. Females might just, you know, literally just lay their eggs and then hop off. They're done with it, you know. And then the male is left, you know, like, you know, making sure that the eggs are, you know, don't have get eaten by other predators and that they stay nice and wet. And in some cases, giving them piggybacks on their back to take them to little ponds high up in trees and... I mean, they're a candidate for nature's best dad, you know. But, um, and th this is a poison dart frog, um, Philobartus terribilis, actually. But, um, you know, these, these frogs, you know, sometimes, it's, and it's completely random, sometimes it's more often than not it's the male, but sometimes it is the female that does it. And so Lauren O'Connell, who's uh, uh, a brilliant uh, uh, neuroscientist at Stanford, she thought to herself, well, that's a really interesting way for us to look at the sort of the, the neuro neurological mechanics of maternal instinct, you know, of, of this parental instinct. And she found that the, the neural architecture in the brain 
that, that triggers this behavior is basically exactly the same in males and females. It's this, these galanin neurons that, that get activated and they, they trigger this parental behavior. So it's a, a parental instinct. And then sure enough, Catherine Dulac, who's at Harvard a few years later, and she won a huge science prize a couple of years ago for finding exactly the same thing in the brains of mice. So she found that she was able to, that it was, it was galanin neurons, it was the same neural architecture, just you know, a bit more advanced but in, 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 in mice, that, that it, it, she could trigger parental behavior, nurturing behavior in males, which are normally infanticidal, or, or virgin females are also infanticidal, but by triggering, stimulating this, this, this area. She, she calls it a switch for parenting, basically. Same in males and females. And she's pretty convinced that you'll find it in, in humans that, you know, there's, there's no reason why we shouldn't. So, you know, for a long time, we've had this idea that males are f- male brains are from Mars and, and females are from Venus. And, you know, we need these massive differences in our brains. Darwin himself thought that males were more evolved and that they were more intelligent. You know, we've been looking for, for years for significant differences in the brains of males and females, and we just can't find them. There are some differences that are related to reproduction, but beyond that, that they are more or less the same. And nowhere is this more evident than in species that actually change sex. So these you'll be f- the, these are a clown or an emini fish, um, and they're, they're they're one of the five hundred species of fish that we know of that, that regularly switch sex. So, some some species do it several times a day, um, <laughs> but uh, the anemone fish just does it once in a lifetime. And they're probably the most famous because they're obviously the, the stars of Finding Nemo, right? We all know the anemone fish. Um, and what happens with anemone fish is that they live in an anemone and the, 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 the female and male, they form a monogamous partnership and um, there's not a lot of room in an anemone. So you have, you know, you have a, a, a male and a female. And the female's dominant. She's much bigger. And then a couple of immature males. And if you remove the female, she gets eaten or she dies, then her partner, her male partner, will transition and become the dominant female. And one of the immature males will go through um, sexual maturity and and become her breeding partner. Which, of course, means that a biologically accurate version of Finding Nemo, in which little Nemo lost his mum and went on a big adventure and was reunited with his dad at the end of the movie, would have a very different ending. (laughs) Um, but um, what's fascinating about about these fish for Justin Rhodes, who studies them, is that it, it, he's able to sort of study that transition and, and how that happens, the mechanics of that. And what he's found is that almost immediately, if you remove the female, the male that's left behind will start behaving like a female and will be recognized as a female. And you know that because... The, the females are incredibly aggressive. And if you put two females together, they, I mean, he showed this to me. He sent me a video. I couldn't believe it. But he, he's like, yeah, check them out. They yell at each other, right? And it's true. They make this kind of pop, pop, pop sound. And they're like, they're like really aggressive with each other. And then if you put a, a male and a female together, then the female's not aggressive. And two males are not aggressive with each other. So, so he knows that, you know, that almost immediately the females are, uh, the, 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 the male as soon as the female's taken out, starts behaving as a female, is recognized as a female by the other fish. But the gonads take up to a year to change from being um, testes to ovaries. 
So the biological sex remains male for a long time, whereas the behavior and, uh, and the sexual identity of the fish, as it were. I mean, in, in, in animals, we don't, we don't talk about gender. We, we, animals don't have gender as far as uh, science is concerned. We consider that to be a, a, a social and cultural um, psychological construct. But, um, you know, in many ways you could think of this as being like the, the gender of the fish is, is female, but the, but the sex is male for some time, which is really fascinating, I think, and suggests that, you know, sex is incredibly complicated and, and, um, and perhaps sexual identity, sexual behavior, sexuality and, and biological sex are independently regulated. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's a complex situation. So here they are, some of the females from my book that I've introduced you to. Um, and they, they, are, uh, they, they, they teach us that sex is no crystal ball, really. Uh, it's neither static nor deterministic. It's, it's a flexible trait, just like any other, that's shaped by the peculiar interaction of, of genes in the environment. And, you know, the time has come to sort of ditch these outdated binary expectations of, of the sexes, I think, and, and to think of them as, as being set in, in one or the other, because actually males and females are, are more alike than they are different. Um, and the female experience exists on a, on a continuum. It's, it's variable, highly plastic, and refuses to, to conform to archaic classifications. And I think our appreciation of this fact can only enrich our understanding of the natural world and enhance our empathy for one another as humans. Thank you. So do we have any questions here? Does anybody have one? I have a couple online, but we'll go right here. Hi, Lucy. Hi there. I know that you have done for many years a lot of research in the field, and I'm wondering, has it changed in the last couple of years with what everyone's going through with COVID, or is the great outdoors the perfect place to be doing your work? Well, you know, I so I first of all, I'm not. I'm. I mean, you know, I I did study science at university, but I'm 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 a storyteller now. So I mean, I do, but I do visit a lot of scientists in the field, and there was there was there was a field science like everything else just stopped when when COVID hit because you couldn't travel, people couldn't get, and it was a really scary time for field science because, well, you know, how are you going to get to your study? How are you going to maintain study sites? You know, projects like you know, Gene Altman's that have been running for 40 years. You, you've got to maintain those. But things are up and running again now and, and, um, and, and, and field life is continuing, thank goodness. So, um, but yeah, I mean, like everybody, field scientists have, have, have had to adjust and cope. But I mean, I went out with, um, what's interesting though is, is that you, you, one has to be aware that COVID can spread not just between humans, but from humans to animals as well. So we went, it was an amazing privilege on our Commonwealth safari. We went to go and see the gorillas in, um, Verung, um, in Rwanda. And, um, you know, we wore masks obviously the whole time because, you know, we didn't want, the, the, the gorillas could very easily catch COVID from us and we don't want that. And, and um, I was with some capuchin researchers in Costa Rica at the end of last year 
running around the bush chasing capuchins, which is a very sweaty business uh, and made 10 times worse by wearing a mask. But you've got to do it, you know, because God forbid you were to pass it on to, a, to another primate, you know, the, the devastation that it's, it's wreaked amongst human society. So, yeah, it, it's been challenging times, but I think things are getting back to normal again, thankfully. Good question. Thank you. Um, first off, uh, I apologize for us being late. We missed uh, much of the meat of uh, your presentation, so we're sorry about that. But uh, the, the two uh, animals that you showed, the frog and uh, the mouse, and you were talking about how the, it's been demonstrated that neural architecture is the same and all. And I'm, so I'm wondering about their instinct or impulse to parenthood. If that's the case, wh you know, why is it hormonal likely that triggers... That's the million-dollar question. That's a fantastic question. And that was the first question that I asked Catherine Dulac. I was like, so what's the trigger? And she was like, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so she thinks that it's, it's likely to be a, a complex mixture of internal and external cues. It, it, but it's not as simple as it just being oxytocin. So I, I was like, oh, is it just oxytocin that just does it? I mean, oxytocin is a cuddle hormone. We all know. You're probably all familiar with um, it's incredibly powerful bonding hormone and, and is associated with motherhood as well. Um, but it, she, it, the oxytocin system is, 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 is parallel. It's, it's not, it, it's, it's, it, this, this system works, is, is triggered by something else, basically. I, I would um, think there's a, there's a behavioral feedback loop too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it yeah. And it, but she's, she's, she's working on that and, um, and soon we'll know, you know. But the good news is, and she says, and it was really sweet. She said, you know, it, it's it's fantastic because, you know, it, it gets this. The, it, it's a switch that does get triggered, and it can get triggered equally in males and females, and also in in adoptive parents. You know, so, and I think that's a really profound and wonderful thing for people to understand that you know, these. It, it's not you're not like born with this instinct. You know, the, the, but it, it 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 lives in all of us. It just has to be triggered, basically. So I have a question from an online viewer, which is, is there some place in the world that you still hope to travel to and any animal that you really want to observe in their natural habitat? Well, I would have said gorillas, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but we've, 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 we clambered up a mountain and, and saw those earlier in the year. Um, uh, it would be the bonobos, actually, because I haven't, I haven't been to the Congo and I haven't seen the bonobos. And I, I, you know, I just think they're, they're just so incredibly fascinating and there, there's not very many of them they, they, they only exist on one side of the Congo River um unlike the chimpanzees are quite widely distributed so and they're really you know where they exist is just like a hotbed of war and and strife and um I just, I, I just would really love to see them. I'm, a, I'm a bit nervous of going there, but I, 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 I just would really, really love to go and, and see them. So I think the bonobos would be the top of my list. And then, is there, uh, w what was the most surprising animal that you discovered when you were doing this book? Well, that's a really interesting question because the most surprising animal was an incredibly common animal, actually, that that really blew my mind the most, and that's. The, the common garden mole. 
So, I mean, any of you are gardeners, you probably hate moles. You know, they, you know, they ruin your garden with their, you know, rude um, um, mole hills. Um, but the, but the, they, they're extraordinary creatures, right? So living underground's not easy and um, there's, you know, you've got to dig for a living and there's not a lot of oxygen down there. And, and so evolution's given the mole a number of amazing adaptations. They've got, um, they can smell in stereo so they can find their worm prey um, in the pitch black. They've got an extra thumb so they can dig, dig harder. And they've got specialized blood cells, which means they can process waste gases more efficiently. But the most amazing thing about the female mole are her bulging male gonads. So the female mole has what's described as ovotestes. So her gonads are half ovarian tissue and half um, testicular tissue. And during the short breeding season, the ovarian tissue pumps out eggs and and she you know she 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 mates and and is pregnant and gives birth as as you'd expect but outside of the breeding season the testicular tissue swells and pumps out testosterone which makes her dig really hard and and be really aggressive and, and defend and defend her pups and this sort of gonadal fluidity was was something that you know, we didn't really think it was possible in mammals, you know, uh, uh, because well, how we think about sort of sexual differentiation and determination, um, you think of it as being, you know, in terms of genetics, we all learn at school, don't we, you know, that there's a, females are XX and males are XY. And you sort of think that all the genes for making a male are going to be on the Y chromosome, and the genes for making a female will be on the, on the X chromosome, and it's all nice and neat and ordered. Well, it's nothing like that. So Jenny Graves, who's been studying sexual um, determination in, in everything from platypus to nematode worms, she's Australian now in her 80s, amazing woman. She was part of the team that found the SRY gene, which is the trigger for, for these pathways in humans. So um, in, in humans, the, 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 if, if, if there's a, an SRY gene, uh, if there's a Y chromosome, an SRY gene on the, on the Y chromosome, then it triggers the pathway to being male. And, and in the absence of it, the, the, the pathway is the female pathway. And Jenny explained to me that <clears throat> we'd always thought of these pathways as being linear and distinct. But it turns out that they're, they're not. They are basically, they're enmeshed and they work antagonistically. So the pathway to create a male, which is basically to create a testes, um, also suppresses making an ovary. So, and, and the most amazing thing is, is that the genes involved in these two pathways to make a testes or to make an ovary, other than the SRY gene, which is the trigger, they're the same genes. Like they're the same genes, they just play in a different order to a different tune. And they, it, I mean, when she, she said, when she explained to me what these pathways look like, she sent me this extraordinary mechanical machine thing with cogs and whirs and balls getting crushed and spat out. And, and, and it, it's chaos, right? But that's because evolution is a series of botch jobs. You know, and we think of it as this sort of quest for perfection, but it's not. It's just a series of botch jobs, right? And so this system, you know, 
is is very sort of unstable and the slightest change in it means that you get you can have creatures like the mole so the mole achieves her you know her extraordinary ovotestes she's only got a mutation in two of the proteins that regulate two of the uh, two genes that regulate um uh, the, the the process right so and that and that's how that's achieved so you know uh, you might look at this sort of this this anarchy <laughs> of sex determination and think wow god evolution what were you thinking like how but but it's it's actually it, it throws up all this variation and that's brilliant because that's what we need to evolve, you know. And I think as humans, we're sort of struggling with this idea of variation and what it means. And I think when you look at the animal kingdom and you see the point of variation, then you understand that, that it's all normal and it's all necessary. And without it, we would cease to evolve. So it, it, it's... it's, it's 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 part of the system. It, it's 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 all good basically. So that blew my mind, and that made me really realise that, you know, they, 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 you know that, that basically males and females, as I said, they're more we're more alike than we are different, and you know we're made of the same genes, essentially the same bodies, the same brains. You know, we should just maybe you know Darwin made us focus on the differences between the sexes, and maybe if we focused on the similarities, then we'd all get along with each other a bit better. All right, our thanks to Lucy Cook for joining us tonight. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'd also want to thank our community science partner for uh, tonight, which is Wonderfest. If you haven't already picked up a copy of Lucy's book, we have them here. And if you are listening online, we encourage you to pick up a copy yourself. So thank you all for coming and see you next time. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you so much for coming and listening. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.